Good to see you all. I missed you last week. Sorry I wasn't here. Glad to be back with you. Um, We're going to jump in and do a little bit of recap from chapter 23 and 24 today. So let's open with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for the season of Lent, a season that reminds us every year that we have the opportunity to reimagine who we are and who we can be and to return to you, to return to faithfulness, to reroute ourselves in your gospel message that we can be your change agents in the world, that we can be your light in the darkness, and that we can be the help to the least of these, all those you love dearly. Lord, bless everyone in our community who needs your healing touch. Be with those who are undergoing surgery or treatment or recovery. Help them to know your presence and to feel our love. Be with all those who miss people we love and see no longer. Be a comfort to those who mourn and a strength to those who feel weak. And may we all, through this study and our friendships, Be given courage to leave this place changed and renewed, that we may bear your word in the world. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We are nearing the end of Acts. We don't have a lot left of this book. Last week, Eric Lyles did chapter 23. I'm doing 24 today. And then after today, we only have four more Bible studies before we are over with Acts. The last study is going to be the 1st of May. That's actually the first Wednesday of May, too. Um, So that is the end of our study together. And so if you need a schedule, we've got them at the door. Uh, I would love for you all, if you haven't yet, to sign up for our email list because as we prepare for next school year's Bible study, because we'll do it again, we'll do something new, I wanna make sure you know when we're gonna start and make sure you've got all of that information ahead of time. And so I love doing this. And so we hope we'll continue again next year. So still have a month left, so it's not too far. And I hope that you have made plans to celebrate Easter wherever you are. Hopefully it'll be here, but in case you're traveling somewhere. We've got great plans for Palm Sunday all the way through Holy Week and Easter, and Palm Sunday is only a week and a half away, so it's, it's close. So I know someone said to me the other day something about, what, what were we talking about? I forget, someone referenced something that felt like it was far off, and I said, I think it's a little too soon, and they said it's only six weeks away. Oh, I remember what it was. Pub theology is going to be in June again. I don't know if you all heard about that last summer. It was really well received. It was four, I think, Mondays in June, and it's over at a pub in Mockingbird Station. We'll do it the same place for the same four weeks with great topics and speakers, and all four of the weeks last summer were packed in this bar. It was really engaging and interesting. And so we're talking about how to, I mean, I know it's hard to convince people to go to a bar, but... (laughs) It was great because we're going to do it again, and what we were talking about was making sure people who came to church at Easter knew we were doing pub theology, and I said, well, isn't it a little early to tell people about pub theology at Easter? I said, six weeks. Six weeks from Easter is June? (sighs) Okay, so I said, it's just moved so fast. Where does the time go? Okay, let's jump in. So chapter 23 want to do a little review to figure out how we've gotten here. So we know that Paul has been arrested and brought before the council, and the tribune, who represents Rome, 
has agreed to allow Paul to go in front of the council again, to actually have a formal religious trial in front of the council. Now, the tribune knew at the end of chapter 22 that Paul is a Roman citizen. So he has shifted from someone who probably didn't care much for Paul to being somewhat of Paul's protector and defender. He does not want the Jews to hurt this Roman citizen, even if he is also a Jew. And so as Paul goes in front of the council, he recognizes that the members of the council are made up basically of Sadducees and Pharisees. So Paul cleverly throws a little bomb in the middle of the council. He talks about receiving a revelation from God about the Messiah and the resurrection of the dead. Why that's a little bomb is because the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not agree about life after death. The Sadducees thought that pretty much life ended. Now, you're supposed to be a good person while you're alive. Yes, you keep the rules and you keep the laws and you do all the stuff you're supposed to, but then when, you're, when you die, that's pretty much it. The Pharisees had more of an understanding of life after death like we would recognize, which was life does not simply end, but it does change. And there is a resurrection of the dead, but it will come at the end when the Messiah comes again, which is a little confusing because you might think, well, wait a minute, the Jews thought about the Messiah. Well, yeah, they expected the Messiah would come. They didn't think he'd come yet. So they expected he would come and then come again. And it's that come again where all of the dead would be resurrected and be brought to God and there would be a new creation. That sounds very similar to a Christian viewpoint. There are some obvious differences. We believe that there's a realization of, of oneness with God after our death, but that there is a remake, a new creation in the end when God, when the Messiah comes again. Paul is saying to the group, the Messiah has come for the first time and the Messiah will come again and the resurrection of the dead will happen and he knew when he threw that out there in front of the council that the Pharisees and the Sadducees would turn on each other. And they did. So he's very clever. He was the target at the beginning. But then he let this idea float out there and they turned on each other. So much so that the tribune was afraid that Paul would be hurt. And so the tribune removes Paul from the council and afterwards learns that the Jews now have a plot to kill Paul. So if you can imagine the council's reaction, the thoughtful people probably felt dumb because there they were, they had Paul right there in their council, they were gonna try him and get rid of him, and instead they fought amongst themselves. They were likely very annoyed and frustrated with themselves at the end of that, and so they decided that they were going to create a plot in which they could ambush Paul and kill him. One of Paul's nephews hears of this, comes and tells the tribune, and the tribune realizes he can't put Paul in a situation where he could be hurt because he's a Roman citizen. And so he decides he needs to send Paul away. And so sort of super secret agent style, he sends him out in the cover of night over to Caesarea. And Caesarea Maritima, over on the coast, is where the Roman headquarters are for that whole region. And that's where we get to the end of chapter 23 before we get into today's chapter 24. I'd like, just because I wasn't with you last week, 
to know if there are any questions or needed clarity around how we have gotten to today's chapter 24. Really? Awesome. Okay, here we go. So, chapter 24. Chapter 24 is divided up into three sections. The first section is the case against Paul. And that case against Paul is made in a more thoughtful way. And it's done before Paul's... We'll stop there. Then we have Paul's defense. Paul defends himself again. Poor Paul has had to defend himself over and over again. And then we've got Paul's custody. The end of chapter 24 finds Paul just held in custody for a long time. So scope of what we're looking at in chapter 24 is an actual jump of two years. So we start at the beginning of chapter 24. Paul has been sent from Jerusalem, which is central Israel, to the northwest coast to Caesarea. Caesarea is where the governor of Judea would live. So we're about to meet Governor Felix. Caesarea is where former governors lived as well. We know one of them, Pilate. So the governor of Judea anchored himself in Caesarea. And I think I've said it in here before, but just to make the connection, Pilate came from Caesarea to Jerusalem for Passover. That is why he was there when Jesus got there and was able to do the trial in Jerusalem that ultimately condemned Jesus to death and ended up in his crucifixion. Pilate did not live in Jerusalem. He lived in Caesarea. But he was the Roman figurehead. And so when the majority population is having a big party, the Roman figurehead, the governor, had to show up and wave at everybody on behalf of the emperor. That's why Pilate was there. Felix, in this situation, is the new governor, and Felix is living in Caesarea. So the tribune has to send Paul to Felix in Caesarea in order to keep him safe from the Jews of Jerusalem who want him dead. So we begin this chapter with Paul's arrival in Caesarea. Paul gets to Caesarea, is under the protection of Felix, the governor of Judea, and Felix calls for the leaders of Jerusalem to come to him in Caesarea in order to make their case against Paul. So Ananias, the high priest, comes on up to Caesarea with elders and his lawyer, Tertullus. So at the beginning of this chapter, Ananias, the high priest, has brought his lawyer, Tertullus, all the way to Caesarea in order to make the legal case against Paul. So if Ananias brings his lawyer to Caesarea, we get to have a few lawyer jokes. Okay, ready? Here we go. I love lawyers, so I've got nice lawyer jokes. It is Bible study, and we're in church after all. So what's the difference between a good lawyer and a great lawyer? Alive or dead? Oh my gosh, Charlie, are you a, are you a lawyer? I want you to know... Lawyers have the best lawyer jokes. If you, I mean, the best ones I've ever heard come from lawyers themselves. Okay, so what's the difference between a good lawyer and a great lawyer? A good lawyer knows the law. A great lawyer knows the judge. All right, there's one. Okay, what do you call, I told you these are clean lawyer jokes. They're clean. 
What do you call a priest that becomes a lawyer? A father-in-law. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Okay, here's my favorite. <laughs> okay, I like this one too. So when attorneys die, why do they bury them 600 feet underground? Because deep down, they're really nice guys. That's it. <laughs> okay. We're done with lawyer jokes. Okay, move on. So chapter 24. Ananias brings his lawyer up to Caesarea in order to make the case against Paul. Let's have a little historic note here. Governors of different provinces in the Roman Empire were in essence being trained to be more important leaders at some point in the future, right? It's almost like in any sort of uh, large business, you may send someone to be the manager of some place away from headquarters for a bit in order for them to prove that they're able to do it at a high level, and then you bring them back to HQ in order to raise them up and potentially become the more important people. So the governors in the Roman Empire were very important, but they still had some some possibility for assent. So they were sent out to these different places in order to prove their mettle. Felix, historically, is one of those governors that does not really prove his worth. Felix is sort of a waste of space. He doesn't do anything. So doesn't do anything bad, necessarily, but doesn't do anything good, either. Historically, Felix just doesn't do anything. And we're going to see how that manifests itself with Paul at the end of chapter 24. So Felix, although has the authority, he's wishy-washy. Doesn't want to make decisions, doesn't want to cause any trouble, just wants to kind of kick the can and keep everyone uncertain of what could happen because then nobody really does anything. And we've said before that Rome will ignore almost anything so long as you do not disturb the peace. All Rome wants is for you to not be a rabble-rouser. Worship whatever you want, work whatever you want, be bad, drink too much, have sex too much, do whatever you want, just don't disturb the peace. So when Tertullus comes up with Ananias, the case he makes against Paul goes squarely against Paul by, con by condemning, well, by, I'm sorry, what's my word? Accusing, thank you, we have lawyers in here, by accusing Paul of disturbing the peace. So look at verse 5, chapter 24, and we'll see the crux of his argument. Chapter 24, verse 5, Tertullus says, We have, in fact, found this man a pestilent fellow, an agitator among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazareans. So what Tertullus argues is that Paul disturbs the peace, and he disturbs the peace way beyond Jerusalem. He has consistently, everywhere he went, caused trouble. He is also ringleader, a leader, of the Nazarenes. Now, the Nazarenes, I assume we all realize, is Jesus, right? These are Jesus' followers. Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth residents are Nazarenes. So they are equating... Jesus' followers to people from Nazareth. It's not accurate, 
but we get a little glimpse of how people were misunderstanding and categorizing the early Jesus followers in this first century. So the sect of the Nazarenes. Like I said, Romans do not like people who disturb the peace. And so Tertullus has made a very sound argument knowing his audience. He doesn't really point much of the blame on religion. Instead, he is trying to appeal to Felix's great fear that he would have to answer to a problematic population. Like I said, Felix is a historic character who just didn't do anything. And so he just wants nothing to happen because then nobody will blame him for anything. Let's see. That's really the end of their argument against Paul. And we're going to shift to Paul's defense as part two of this chapter. Questions about Felix, where they are, why they're doing this, what their issues may be, and how they're making the argument? You've all become such good Bible study people. Okay. <laughs> Let's shift to part two. Paul's defense. So Paul hears what Tertullus says to Felix, and Paul and Luke, remember Luke is writing this story, so Paul articulates his defense in a subtle way that is slightly different than the way that he has done it in the past. And what's interesting about the way Luke tells this story is at first glance, we may say, oh my gosh, we have to listen to Paul defend himself again, right? How many times has Paul explained himself to different people along the way? Yes, that's true in, in the shallow way. But in a deeper way, Paul subtly twists what he says about Christianity and his own actions each time he does this. And there's always a little bit more that we can glean as he almost turns the crystal around the idea of what it means to follow Jesus. We see a little bit of new stuff in the way that Paul defends himself in this chapter. So let's flip to verse 11. So chapter 24, verse 11, Paul refutes the main charge against him, this main charge of causing a disturbance. Paul says, as you can find out, it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They did not find me disputing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd either in the synagogues or throughout the city. Neither can they prove to you the charge that they now bring against me. As we note, Tertullus has brought the charge of disturbing the peace against Paul, and Paul says, there's no way to prove it. Not only did I not do that, but you can't prove it. Then he moves on. His second point in his defense is he refutes that sort of casual accusation that the followers of Jesus are some kind of sect. Now, I want to note before we get into this, sect is not really meant to be derogatory. Sect is, more, is meant more to be accurate. It is a group of people. And we may hear sect and think of weird people out in the woods or something like that. That's not really how they're using this word. It's really about just a group of people who define themselves in a particular way. Pharisees were a sect. Sadducees were a sect. Essenes were a sect. These Nazarenes are another sect. But they are a sect that has gone too far afield. So if we imagine the, in the day, you could be Jewish in different ways, just like today with Christian denominations. There are denominations, um, let me flip that word. There are groups, worshiping communities, who
who would say they are Christian. One, the easiest example would be Mormons. Mormons say they're Christian. That's very nice, except most of the historic Christian groups, like the Episcopal Church, does not recognize them as Christian in the same way that we are. They have simply gone too far away from what we might say is the core identity of being Christian to be considered Christian like us. Now, I say that because that's what our national bodies say. I mean, you know, people who go to church now, I think, have more in common with people who don't, regardless of why they go to church. Um, But that is a good example of where they're making a distinction today. The Nazarenes would say they're Jewish, right? The people who are following Jesus would absolutely say they're Jewish. They're just doing it in a new way. They believe the Messiah has come. These older groups of Jews, Sadducees and Pharisees in particular, are saying they may say they're Jewish, they are not. They have gone too far from what it means to be Jewish, to call themselves Jewish. In the same way that there are people who might call themselves Christian that we would then say, you're just too far away from what is core for a Christian identity. Make sense? So let's look at verse 14. Paul says, But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our ancestors, believing everything laid down according to the law or written in the prophets. I have a hope in God, a hope that they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. Therefore, I do my best always to have a clear conscience toward God and all people. So Paul has begun to claim the moral high ground. If you see the way that he has structured these statements, he's saying we are not a sect. We are like them, but unlike them in an important way. We are unlike them because we are actually accepting of all people, a clear conscience toward God and all people. Paul is saying God is bigger than who they think he is. And we are anchoring ourselves in the God of our ancestors, but we have now grown and expanded and included all people in God's work. That might be the simplest, most concise way to understand the difference between Judaism and Christianity in the first three centuries. They thought they were Jews that just simply included everybody. So that means, necessarily, they can't be Jewish like they had been Jewish for centuries. They just can't be. But it's not because they are somehow rejecting the Jewishness of their ancestors. They're taking that Jewish identity, and they are now wrapping everybody up into it. And obviously, we have seen throughout Acts that there, is, there are some real tangible questions about this physical manifestations. Do you have to be circumcised? And they've decided, no, don't have to do that. And they've gone through systematically and made some of these decisions, what you do need to do and what you don't need to do, because they want to make sure they maintain that Jewishness that roots all the way back to Sinai, where Moses and God spoke, and the covenant, and the ark, and how they came into the promised land, and all of that stuff matters. They're not jettisoning any of that truth. They're simply now taking it a step further and wrapping their arms around everyone else, all of God's people. 
Paul claims an authority that is also something bigger than Rome. And that's where we get a little tricky here, which is ultimately what keeps him in custody. Paul makes an argument here that is aimed in two different directions. Yes, we are not a sect that is somehow denying our Jewish nature, but we are a group that leaves the old way of being Jewish in order to include everybody, but he goes one step farther. He talks about ultimate authority, and that ultimate authority, righteousness and truth, also usurps Rome. So he transitions into what will ultimately be a threat to the authority of Rome. Rome doesn't like people who cause a ruckus. Rome also doesn't like people who don't give them deference. So you go into your temples, your synagogues, do whatever you want, but whatever you do does not undermine the authority of Rome. And Paul is basically saying, hey, I'm not worried about you, high priest, because we figured out the truth. But also, I'm not worried about you, Roman governor, because we have a truth that's bigger than you too. And that becomes Paul's threat to Rome, which we will see will ultimately be what gets him condemned to death. Finally, Paul gets to what is really his defense. Verse 17 and 18. It says, Now after some years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to offer sacrifices. And while I was doing this, they found me in the temple, completing the rite of purification without any crowd or disturbance. And he goes on to say, What I was doing in Jerusalem was what a good Jew would do, and what I am doing outside of Jerusalem is what a good follower of Jesus would do. So he has done a defense in a slightly different way than he has done in the past, because now he's taking aim at Rome's authority as well. So before we get to the end of this chapter, any questions or clarity about the way that Paul makes this argument? Is this, the question is, is this uh, an echo of what Jesus said when he, when he was in front of Pilate, saying that he had not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, in a way. So Jesus has this very um, opaque response to Pilate when he's on trial. Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus says, you say that I am, which is the kind of response that I feel like you'd get from your teenager, um, every time I hear that story, I always think, oh my God, I would punch you in the face, right? I mean, that's the kind of response where you're like, well, you say that I am, really? Um, but theologically speaking, sorry, put that down. Um, theologically speaking, Jesus' response is pointing to something that is not worldly. So the whole idea of king is a worldly idea. So, are you a king? And Jesus sort of says, ah, I mean, kind of, but not really, because what you're saying when you say king is not who I am. But the implication that somehow there is a universal authority, that's kind of right. And so, no, I'm not a king like you say king, but am I sort of kingly? Yes. 
And so he never outright answers Pilate, which is part of Pilate's frustration. Depending on the gospel passion story you read, and just like there are two nativity stories, one we get wise men and Egypt, and the other one we get shepherds and Gabriel and that sort of stuff, there are multiple different, bless you, there are multiple different passion stories, and the character of Pilate and Jesus are different in each. We're almost a holy week, right? We're only, only a few days away. It may be a really neat discipline for you, and by discipline, I should use air quotes because it might take you 20 minutes, but discipline to go sit down and read all four passion stories. They're not that long. I mean, you can, you can do that in 20 minutes. Now, you need more time to think about them and maybe compare them, but if you were to maybe Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, each day read one and think about what was actually in that story so that the next day you read number two, you'll be able to see how the character of Pilate and Jesus are different. Jesus goes to Herod and then doesn't go to Herod in different stories. Pilate washes his hands in one story, not the others. I mean, there are subtle differences in the way that they are characterized. One of the primary things that is represented in all of them with Pilate is an indecisive nature about Jesus. Sometimes the indecision is implied, where Pilate just seems a little wishy-washy. He doesn't really want to kill Jesus. He doesn't really see what his problem is. But then in others, it's explicit. He says, I don't want to do this. And the Jews yell back at him, and he says, fine, the blood is on you. Somewhere in the middle of that is truth, right? It's probably not any one of those four exactly. But I think Pilate's response to Jesus may be similar to Felix's response to Paul. I would imagine that Pilate, this is complete me now, okay? Not scripture. I imagine Pilate and Felix, in similar ways, have that feeling inside them that these men are true and honest and right. And in their mind, they know that it's problematic what these men are saying. But they just can't shake their gut feeling that they're hearing something true. And so I think that's why you get this implication with Pilate in the Passion Story that he really doesn't want Jesus to die. He really would like to kind of get him off and gives them a chance to let him off. But ultimately, his brain wins out over his gut, and he says, okay, I'd much rather keep the peace than maybe do what I think my gut tells me is right. And Felix is doing something very similar here, because as we transition to the third section, ultimately, Felix doesn't make a decision. Ultimately, Felix hears the argument against Paul, hears Paul's defense, and then says, I'm gonna think about it. And then for two years, Paul sits in custody while Felix thinks about it. And then ultimately, Felix is replaced. And it's once Felix is replaced that Paul says, come on, we need to make something happen, right? Because Paul doesn't want to sit in prison. And so Paul appeals to actually have his trial in Rome. 
That's the reason Paul ultimately goes to Rome, is because although he gets this hearing, so to speak, with Ananias and Tertullus and Felix, it's not a real trial. They have not reached a decision point. And he's patient for a bit, but once Felix is gone, he says, ah, we've got to move on. We've got to do something. And so he appeals to go to Rome where he ultimately gets that trial. I think that it's fair to characterize Felix in a similar way to Pilate. They don't really want to make a decision here. They may not know why. They may not know. They may not even think that Jesus or Paul are right. But something just tingles, and they don't want to do it. Other thoughts or questions? Madeline, I see it coming out. What? <laughs> Don't hold it in. What? Great. So now that we know, I'm going to get to your question in one second. I'm going to tie off the chapter real fast. And then I think that's a great next step. Felix makes no decision, holds Paul in custody. I've mentioned it here before, but just to reiterate, a Roman citizen is not jailed like we might think of as prison. It's much more like house arrest. They're, they're comfortable. They can't go anywhere, but they're basically comfortable. They can correspond with people. They can even entertain people. Entertain strong. They can meet with people. So people who knew Paul could go up to Caesarea and see him and talk to him. Paul could write letters. He could continue to write, which he does. So it's not quite the imprisonment that we might think. It's a bit more of a, of a uh, respectful, honorable custody. He just can't leave. And so I imagine Paul is more patient over those two years than he would have been otherwise because he can kind of still do the stuff he needs to do, writing letters and corresponding and meeting with people. But he just can't leave. And so after two years, he needs to get on with it. So holding a Roman citizen is really custody more than it is imprisonment. And we'll see that same custody maintained as Paul travels back to Rome. He's not in a cell on the ship or something like that. He just has to stay in his room. And that can be frustrating too. So that's really the end of the action of chapter 24. So a great question that was just asked is, what does this mean to us? If the Bible is meant to instruct, then we have to always go from what's actually happening, right? So that's kind of the best of a Bible study is we know what is actually happening, not what we think we heard about happening and not what we think is implied, but actually what does the story say? I mean, last Sunday we heard the story of the prodigal son and really the whole point of my sermon was what isn't there and what isn't there is an apology. We think the prodigal son was repentant. Well, but we don't know. I mean, it sure is nice to think he was, but Luke's a good storyteller, and Luke did not say he was. So just like that, when we read Acts, and we know that the author is very good. Sometimes we have writers of, of books in the Bible where they're eh, perhaps not so intentional. Luke is not one of them. Luke is really good at it. And so Luke does not say what Luke doesn't want to say. So then what does this mean to us? The way you asked that question, you said we're not religiously persecuted today. So 
I want to take that idea and maybe split it in half. If we believe religious persecution is something physical and violent, no. I mean, I don't know how many of us have, have to cross, you know, fear for our physical safety when we come into church. Do you remember when I first got here, there were signs in the parking lot that said, um, lock your car, hide your valuables? I hated those signs because it was sort of said, you know, like, welcome to St. Michael. It's scary here. Um, <laughs> they were all over the parking lot. And I said it to someone when I first got here. I said, what is with those signs? And what was so funny is that they were, they were pretty. They had our logo, and they were like, lock your car, hide your valuables. And I, said, I want them gone. I want them out of the parking lot. And I said, well, you know, there was, a, there was a point in time recently where people were having their cars broken into. Yeah, it's the world. Like, you have not left the world when you come to church. So that might happen like anywhere, anywhere. But we really are not physically afraid for ourselves most of the time. Certainly not because of our religion, right? We may need to watch ourselves and be smart just because we're people. But nobody's targeting us as Christians. Yeah. I know. Okay, I say that with the caveat that there is that very, very small, I mean, unfortunately, that's happened a little more often than we wish it were, but it's still a, such a small fraction of a fraction of a fraction of people have been targeted like that, that it's not really part of our daily reality. However, if we take away the idea of physical harm, I do think that if you were to actually do this Jesus stuff, you would find that most of the time, people do not treat you well for it because it is so countercultural. Look at things like forgiving your enemies, loving your enemies. How countercultural is that? Most of us live in a social structure where people earn love or not, where people earn friendships or not. That is not Jesus, just so we know. That's not what Jesus says. And then our response could be, well, that's not fair. No. In case you had missed it, Jesus is not fair. Jesus does not make sense. Jesus is not rational or logical. No. That is what following Jesus is all about, making no sense and doing it anyway. In that way, if we were to genuinely do this Jesus stuff, I absolutely think that we would find ourselves outside of the norm in the social sense. Isolated. Because most people don't like this. And we have created lots of, lots of ways to validate and affirm not doing the stuff Jesus said. And most of the time, when people try to validate not doing what Jesus said, they quote another part of the Bible. That's what's dangerous and confusing, that People may say, well, Jesus said this, and some will say, well, Paul said this. 
sorry. If it's Jesus or Paul, I'm going with Jesus. I mean, I think, right? Yes. But that's not what a lot of traditions do. Because going with Jesus means every time we do anything, we are not securing our own authority. We are not lifting ourselves up. We are not making ourselves strong. We are not succeeding. Everything about Jesus undermines all of the ways in which our world counts success and strength and security every single time. We don't like that because we like success and strength and security. And we're not bad to like it. We are human. That is what the Christian journey is all about. Following the way is actually transforming what is naturally human into something that is godly. God is, does not act out of fear. God does not act out of need for authority or power or security. When the first Christians got together, what'd they do? Sold everything. Gave everything to the community. Helped each other. They owned nothing. If we were to say to actually follow Jesus means you own nothing, how popular would our church be? Is that what Jesus says? Actually, yeah, Jesus does say that. When the young ruler came and said, I've done all the good things, what do I need to inherit salvation? Jesus says, give everything away to the poor. And as the story goes, the young man turned away sad for he had many possessions. Then what did Jesus do? Go grab him and say, well, how about 50-50? <laughs> no. Jesus said to his disciples, it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. That's where that comes. It's right after he says, he lets this guy walk away. This guy who is good, I have followed all the commandments, I have gone to church, I have done everything I'm supposed to do, I'm generous, I'm kind, I follow all the rules, what else do I need to do? Sell everything and give it all away. Well, that's too much. And Jesus says, okay. What this story of Paul can teach us is that doing this as right as we can means most people will not like how we behave. And in small ways and big ways, we will be questioned, we will be accused, we will be disliked, we will potentially even be hurt. We may not be physically hurt, but we may emotionally be hurt because we have made a choice to live like Jesus. Man, that's hard. And I certainly, as rector of this congregation, intentionally only push enough to make us feel a little uncomfortable. Because by the way, I own stuff I mean, it's not like I'm somehow living under the bridge. I mean, it's, you know, and it's, uh, you know, I kind of make a joke, but no, we, we all make, we can all rationalize 
compromises that we make. And I wish I could say to you that, that Jesus says that's okay. And Jesus does not say that's okay. Jesus says we are loved, even if we make choices that perhaps are not perfect. We're loved in our fallibility. We're loved because of it. And so we should not feel guilty. But I do want us to feel a little uncomfortable so that maybe we make one decision differently than we would have yesterday. It's not about dropping 100%, but maybe we do one thing differently today, one thing differently this month. Maybe we give a little more to those in need. Maybe we give a little more to our church. Maybe we show up a little bit more to church when it's just not perfectly convenient because we've put something else ahead of us. And if you do that a little bit and a little bit and a little bit your whole life, you will find you are way farther away from who you used to be years down the road. One of the images that I love to use about a Christian journey, it comes from my days going to summer camp, where we used to be given, I don't think you can do this anymore with kids, but we used to be dropped off at the edge of the forest and said, okay, here are directions. You've got to go five degrees for this long, you'll find a tree with an X on it. Then you've got to go 23 degrees this way and you'll find a tree with an X on it. And you do that for like six hours, then you'll find the lake and we're gonna camp there overnight. I can remember being, I was probably like 10 when they did this. And how many 10 year olds are like dropped off at the edge of the forest and said, see you in six hours, hope you make it. Um, I mean, <laughs> it's just, I don't know. Um, anyway, they, we probably should do that more often. But what I remember about that is, you know, we've. I assume we've all held a compass before, right? A straight up old balancing compass, right? Hold it flat, it points north, and if you know you have to go 23 degrees, if you go 24 degrees or 22 degrees over a half mile, you are not gonna find that tree with the X on it. You must be precise. But here's why I like this image. We all think that this Christian life is asking so much of us that it's almost too much. But what I would encourage you to do is don't just go 24 degrees, go 23 degrees. Go a half mile. Then go 22 degrees, go another half mile. And if every year you move one degree over the course of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you have become a radically different person. You are in a completely different place than you would have been had you just stuck with 24 degrees the whole time. That sort of subtleness is what I think the beauty of Lent is all about. Every Lent, do a little something different. Give up a little something, add a little something. Don't just do it for 40 days. Start doing it forever. And if that means you're gonna pray for two minutes every morning, do it. Then always do it. Then a year from now, what's another little something you could add or take away? Years and years and years of that, and you are totally different. Now, are you perfect? No. We will never be. But trying to reach that perfection that God puts in front of us is, I think, the whole point. How's that? Okay. How are we doing? Maybe one more thought or question? 
Well then, four more weeks and we'll be done with Acts. And remember, week and a half, Palm Sunday, Holy Week. See if you can add one Holy Week service this year. If you've never done Holy Week, come once. And if you need the schedule, grab an archangel, grab a resource guide. It's also in the bulletin. Love to see you once between the Sundays. I think you'll, you'll think it's worth it. Thank you all. See you next week.